Hello, good evening, everybody. Good evening, good day to all of you. Welcome to a new episode of Ask Abhijit. I hope you're all doing well. And let's see who all is there with us today, tonight. I can see Cherry, Karthik, Twilight, Tejas, Vampire, Divyang, Som, RTK, Tanmay, Patrick, Jane, Abhirup, Larson, Somia, Worth Watching, Argya, Shubhankari, Jasjeet, Asmenor, Breaking Dawn, Shri Hari, Arun, Soul in Search of Enlightenment, Enlightenment, Great, K, AJ, Gaurav, Subhi, Om Naik, Om Himanshu, Alpha, Nilesh, Crazy Brain, Sai AM, Tanishk, Rollwind, Foodie Traveler, Som Sharma, Adik Dev and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. Great to be with you all again. And as always, we have a whole bunch of questions that I have selected and hopefully I will answer many of them. And if we have some time at the end, we're going to take some live chat questions as well from the live chat. So let me begin with the uh, questions that I have picked. Let's begin with question number one. Ranjit Nayak says, what is the perfect time to declare a war? What's the perfect time to declare a war? The perfect time to declare a war is when you know that you cannot lose. That is the right time to declare a war. If you are strong enough that you will not lose and and if you know the enemy's capabilities and you have made a proper judgment assessment of where you stand and where the enemy stands, and when you are confident that you cannot lose the war, that is the perfect time to declare a war. You cannot get into a war in which you have a significant chance of losing. You simply can't do that. You should not do that. So the perfect time to declare a war is when you are impregnable. When your position is impregnable, when your position is impregnable, and when you simply cannot lose, when you have covered all the bases and you have made sure that all your defenses are perfect, that's when you can go into a war because you simply can't lose, and that would give you a significant chance of winning. So that is the perfect time to declare a war. Mohammed Danish Khan says India, Pakistan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Israel, Palestine, Sri Lanka, Sinhalese, Tamils, and China, Hong Kong are all of the mentioned countries that have disputes with one another in some way or the other. While the British are living their life away from all the chaos they created, was this done unintentionally or was this a well thought out plot? <laughs> The British did not do any of this unintentionally. They created problems wherever they went. Whichever countries they colonized or occupied or fought against, they created divisions within those countries, within those societies, exploited those divisions in order to rule them. And then when they left, they created bigger problems before they left. That is the good old cliche of divide and conquer, divide and rule. That's what the British have done everywhere. Whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in anywhere else, whether it's in, in, the, in the British islands themselves, they have always used the strategy of divide and rule. There are so many civil wars going on in Africa because of the British policy of divide and rule. And even in the British Isles themselves, there is this policy that you can see of divide and rule. Let me show you an example. Let's go to the map. As you guys know, as you all know, I am very fond of the map. So let's take a look at the British Islands. Take a look at 
what's west of the United Kingdom? We have Ireland, which is one single island. And yet, this one single island, Ireland, is divided politically into Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. Southern Ireland is more or less an independent country. Well, de facto independent. But Northern Ireland is occupied by the UK, by Britain. Right? And as you can see, this is a divided island, a divided country. It's the same people. It is the same people, but they are divided. Who divided them? It's the UK, it's the British, it's the English who divided them. So the capital of Northern Ireland is Belfast and the capital of Southern Ireland is Dublin. Uh, so that's how it is. So even in Ireland, they used the policy of divide and rule. Even in Ireland, they had this policy of creating artificial famines. Read it up, look it up, the great potato famine and whatnot. So they, they did these things even in Ireland and lots of other places. And the Americans have continued that policy in some ways. Let's take a look at the Korean Peninsula, North Korea, South Korea. I mean, it's not exactly like that they intended to do this, but well, that's how it is. North Korea, South Korea. In India, they divided the fragmented, the great subcontinent into a bunch of nations, nation states, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Nepal, uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Maldives, one could even argue that Myanmar would have been part of the Indian subcontinent, Indian civilization anyway. So that's what they did here in India. And Africa is, as, as we have discussed many times, full of these strange straight lines on the map, arbitrary straight lines that the European powers have drawn up and arbitrary nations they have created. Many of these have been created by the UK, by the British. So this is a policy they have used time and time again to create trouble, to create problems, to set fire to places, to countries, to cultures, to societies all around the world. That's what they've done again and again and again. And it's uh, and many of the problems that you see in the world today are a legacy of what these people left behind, what the British left behind. So this, so none of this was unintentional. They have created these problems everywhere they went. Uh, whether it's in India, whether it's or whether it's the Sinhalese Tamil issue, whether it is Israel Palestine. Even there, there's a there's a deep history of what these people did. The entirety of the Middle East, even in the Middle East, you will see these straight lines on the map. Yes, shall we take a look? As you can see the straight lines once again all of these artificial nations were created by the western powers mostly it was the british who did this look up the history the arabian peninsula is now saudi arabia what does saudi arabia mean it means that it's arabia ruled by the house of saud who are the saudis who are, who, who what is the house of saud it's a dynasty a family that was installed by the British, more or less. Look up the history. So they have done this wherever they went. Divide and rule, divide and conquer. And uh, so the British are enjoying the fruits of, these, of, of all of this labor that they have done over the past couple of hundred years. Yes, And they have become immensely rich as a consequence of what they have done. And all of these puppet regimes and, and artificial states they left behind and created, 
they are in many ways beholden to the british beholden to the british and much of the world's illicit wealth has found its way into london and uh, such other places so all of this was not unintentional it was all very well thought out and the same policy continues today by the suc- um, the successor state of the british empire so that's what we see today none of this is un- unintentional all of it was done on purpose all right harshit says you have said in one of your sessions that our country or civilization has always been fully industrialized and urbanized but at the same time we always maintained a balance and equilibrium with nature our inventions and technology never harmed the environment and surroundings in any way unlike today we are running out of resources and destroying our planet that we have to rush in search of other planets planets for our new habitat i'm curious to know what kind of industrialization was that and does it have any relevance in today's world and can we revive that system again so that we don't destroy our planet for resources um okay the question was asked by somebody else but yeah all right so industrialization doesn't necessarily destroy the planet i mean as we know india was a completely fully urbanized and industrialized society 5000 6000 years before today we know that we have the evidence the archaeological evidence the largest ancient civilization in terms of geographical area the saraswati sindhu phase of india civilization and also fully urbanized extraordinarily technologically developed and so on and so forth so there was complete industrialization and yet there was no destruction of the environment none whatsoever so what was different then and what is when what's happened what's gone wrong today right that's the question it's very simple those days you had industries that manufactured all kinds of goods and items and things like that but they manufactured things that lasted all right so let's say you want to manufacture let's say pots you manufacture pots that will last a thousand years maybe 5000 years we still find fragments of those pots some of them are intact right and uh, if you manufacture boats or ships you manufacture boats or ships that will last a long time 50 years 100 years maybe whatever you manufacture you manufacture it to last that's how it was in our civilization when it was at its peak we did not treat the environment as a disposable resource today what's happening is we are treating the environment as a commodity as a disposable commodity a disposable resource we are plundering the earth for minerals and what not and what is all of this mineral wealth and resource wealth being used for for disposable commodities what's happened is that capitalism has ruined the world it is in the process of ruining the, ruining the world the english speaking people wherever they went they saw whatever land they conquered as as conquered territory it doesn't belong to it's it's not our territory it's something we have acquired conquered so we can use it plunder it and ruin it it's perfectly fine that's what they have done to north america that's what they did in various other places that's what they did in india they wiped out india's forests they wiped out the wildlife of india the cheetahs they they polluted 
India's sacred rivers. India is a river valley civilization. All rivers were sacred. And today what you find is the legacy of the British Empire that Indian, the, the modern Indian state dumps sewage into the rivers. Well, this was started by the British. And after the so-called independence, we just continued the same policies. So that's one thing. The other thing is capitalism. The, the Whatever is created today is supposed to be disposable. You buy a TV, a big widescreen LCD, LED, whatever TV you buy, it's going to last two or three years. Then it's going to stop working. In the past, maybe 50 years before today, if you bought a TV, it would last 50 years. If someone bought a TV in the 1980s, I am sure that TV would, TV would still work today. Right? If you bought a refrigerator in the 1970s, that refrigerator, that fridge would still be working today. But if you buy an expensive fridge today, it will you'll be, you'll be lucky if it lasts five years, if it works for five years. You buy an air conditioner today, it will last two or three years. If you had bought one 20 years ago, it would still work. So what's happened is that the policy is today is such that whatever you manufacture, you ensure it doesn't last long. So customers have to keep buying the same product over and over again. And that's how you, your company grows. That's why you have, that's how you, uh, you attain this quarter upon quarter profit, this never ending growth on a finite planet. So you want infinite never ending growth on a finite planet with finite resources. What's going to happen? The planet is going to get ruined. We are ruining the environment. We are ruining our soil. We are ruining the forest. We are ruining our ecosystem. We are ruining the oceans. We are dumping plastic into the oceans. We are polluting the atmosphere. All of that is being done because of this, this uh, quest for never-ending infinite growth on a finite planet. So in India, when India was fully urbanized, industrialized, we manufactured things that would last a very long time. What we what we sought was not never-ending growth. We built things to last, and we exported things that uh, to other other cultures, etc., like spices, etc., in a way that was sustainable. And as a result, India became incredibly wealthy. So that is the difference in the, in the. In the 21st century, even in the 20th century, we have uh, had this rise of capitalism, which is essentially stripping the planet for resources. And uh, what it does is, is it con concentrates wealth in the hands of a very few people. It creates this incredible disparity of income and, and wealth and power and everything. And it destroys the planet. Now, I am not pro-socialism or pro-Marxism or whatever. But capitalism clearly is not the right answer because it's destroying the planet. So maybe we need to think about what India did right all these thousands of years ago. India became fully industrialized, a highly technologically developed society and civilization. And it was done in a very sustainable way. So the growth was not staggeringly fast. Today, what happens is that within a decade, you have a new company that comes up and becomes a $100 billion company. That sort of growth is simply not possible when you're not destroying the planet. So in India, the growth happened slowly over centuries, over thousands of years. And over time, India became a massively prosperous and wealthy civilization. It did not happen overnight. It was the result of 
of generations of work of the work put in by generations of indians right so there was slow growth but it was sustainable growth you simply cannot achieve that sort of growth in 10 years or 20 years or even 50 years It takes time so that's what india did we did not destroy the environment we did not plunder the environment we did not look upon the environment as a disposable resource something that is for us to enjoy right so so that's the difference that's why the the planet is being destroyed today it is capitalism it is mercantilism it is uh this world view of looking everything as a resource looking at everything as a resource to be exploited so that is not the indian way of doing things but it is the western way of doing things maybe you could say it's the abrahamic way of doing things because that that's what they say in their holy books enjoy whatever the the whatever god has given you enjoy the fish enjoy the oceans enjoy whatever right so that's a very different world view from what india has always had and that's why the planet is being destroyed and of course they would now like to blame india and china and other developing countries for what's happening for what they have done over the past 2 300 years all the pollution all the destruction of the planet whatever whatever climate change we are seeing today is the consequence of the past 2 300 years of destruction wrought by the west and now they're trying to blame the developing countries for that please don't develop because you are destroying the planet further come on man <laughs> so that's that's the answer in brief Rama Lakshmi says recently many reports of usage of dolphins by Russia for military purposes but these have been known since decades they have been using do you think we need to use animals in a way to fulfill purposes and we have been seeing decrease in wildlife and cattle increasing should there be more petting of these wild animals as people just pet them based on looks it's a moral question okay when it comes to the usage of dolphins and other things uh, other such animals in the for military purposes well like you say it's been it's been done for decades it's been it's been going on for years the americans have been using training dolphins for various military activities not only dolphins even orcas you know the killer whales pilot whales and so on so um that's that's something they have been doing for years they've been using seals for such purposes even octopuses for such purposes and various other animals and forget about these animals they have been even doing such things uh, such experiments on human beings on hapless unknowing humans that's what they have been doing so that's what these people have been doing for a very long time for the best part of the past century or so so is it a good thing should we use animals like that no we should not it's it like you saying it's a like you say it's a moral question it's an ethical it's a question of ethics the western abrahamic world view is that animals are resources to be exploited and they don't see animals as, as sentient beings and even if they are sentient they are not humans so it's it's okay let them suffer let them pay the price of whatever we want them to do so that's how they have always looked upon animals as as a resource and you know how it is right in the west i mean uh, the animal agriculture it's it's industrialized it's on it's on a massive scale they are uh, they kill millions maybe maybe billions of animals every year for for the purpose of 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 raising meat and much of this meat is just wasted you kill these hundreds of millions of animals and you waste a significant portion of that meat that you uh, extracted out of these out of these beings through a great deal of pain and misery 
so uh, and and animal agriculture is extraordinarily destructive to the planet i mean um, in in the us i think the us is the world's largest consumer of beef they raise millions maybe hundreds of millions of cattle every year maybe billions of chickens and god knows what else right and uh, to feed all of these cows that they are raising for meat you need i mean the amount of uh, water it takes to to create one pound of beef is like enough to uh, water multiple football field size of uh, something like that you know there, there is this very interesting movie called cowspiracy i would highly recommend you guys all ladies gents all of you watch that movie it gives you the exact statistics i don't have the figures in uh, of the top of my head right head right now but it takes a shocking amount of water to create just one pound of beef and not only that this animal agriculture it it causes deforestation and why is that because to feed all of these animals you need to grow plants mostly it's soybeans they are raising so so you need to have massive amounts of soybean fields and then you extract the soybeans out of that and then you feed the cows so that they grow they grow large because soybeans contain protein so for that you need enormous amounts of soybean fields and how do you plant the, the so much soybean crops by destroying forests so that is the reason why the amazon, amazon rainforest is being destroyed year after year i think every minute several acre, several acres of rainforest are being destroyed in the amazon every single minute and much of it is because of animal agriculture agriculture so i think it is terrible this obsession with beef and meat that the west has is destroying the planet uh, i think the per capita consumption of meat in in let's say the us must be 100 times the per capita consumption of meat in a country like india maybe more than 100 times so if uh, the average indian average indian let's say hypothetically consumes 1 1 kilo of meat per year the Ameri- average american would be consuming more than 100 kilos of meat i i don't have the exact numbers but it's pretty close to what i'm saying right and uh, and similarly with with the oceans we are destroying the oceans we are uh, i mean uh, i think we are extracting hundreds of millions maybe billions of tons of uh seafood you know fish and uh, prawns and krill and what not out of the oceans it's destroying the oceans it's destroying the balanced ecosystem so uh if it continues like this it's going to destroy the planet and it's going to cause a very very a catastrophe in the coming decades if it goes on like this but you know who's going to stop who's going to stop all this i'm not sure who will so that is the terrible situation that we are in today now when it comes to animals i i believe it is my opinion that we should consider any animals to be sentient beings which they clearly are they have a they they have a consciousness they have an intellect of their own they have thoughts they have feelings they recognize people they have emotions you simply cannot treat them the way they, they are being treated whether it's in the west whether it's any, anywhere else so yeah it's it's highly unethical and it's it's incredibly extraordinarily uh, cruel what's being done to them
Okay. Himank says, what's the mystery behind the lunar lake? And what do you think about the religious stories associated with it? Okay, what is lunar lake? Let's go back to the map. Where is the map? And let's just type it in. Lunar crater or lake, whatever. So this is the place. It is in uh, central India. As you can see, it's more or less central India. It's in the Deccan Plateau. It is in the state of Maharashtra in India. And uh, let's zoom in. So as you can see, it's a reasonably circular kind of lake. If you look at the satellite image, this is what we see. So this actually is not, it is of course the lake, but what caused the formation of this roughly circular lake? Let's take a look at the diameter of this lake. How wide is the lake? So that's approximately over a kilometer, 1.14, 1.15, maybe 1.2 kilometers in diameter. So that's a significantly, significantly large lake from the diameter perspective. It's roughly circular. So what, what is this thing? This is an ancient impact crater. What is an impact crater? It is a hole in the uh, Earth's surface caused by the impact of an extraterrestrial object. Typically, a meteorite, a, an asteroid, a, a, a comet, or some such object that comes from outer space. Right? So this, so that is what caused this crater to 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 exist. And uh, initially, it was thought that it is it is the this crater was the result of volc of ancient volcanism because this region is part of the Deccan Traps. So what are the Deccan Traps? It is a region of ancient volcanism in central India. And this volcanism happened approximately between 70 and 60,000, 60, between 70 and 60 million years before today. It coincides with the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction of the non avian dinosaurs. So it's today believed that the extinction of the non avian dinosaur, dinosaurs happened because of a combination of two events the Indian volcanism, the Deccan Traps volcanism. These were massive volcanoes. So one of the factors is the volcanism in India. And the other factor is the Chicxulub impact event in Yucatan, Mexico, which happened over here. There is this uh, ancient impact crater that you find that is uh, present over here. You cannot see it on the map because it's buried underground, but it has been detected. It, it very much exists. And its epicenter is around the, the village of Chicxulub in Yucatan. So the extinction event of the non-avian dinosaurs happened because of most likely because of a combination of two causes, the Chicxulub impact and the Deccan Traps volcanism. So when this lonar crater was discovered, initially it was believed that this crater was a consequence of that ancient volcanism, the Deccan Traps volcanism. But later it was discovered that it actually uh, shows the characteristics of an impact event. And it is believed that this impact happened maybe 50 or 60,000 years before today. Another more recent study, I believe, says it happened about half a million years before today. So it's still a matter of debate what it is, when it happened, but it is clearly uh, caused by the impact of an inch, uh, the impact of an extraterrestrial object. So that is what the Lonar Lake is. That is the 
lunar crater how it was formed and also there's no real mystery about it uh it is very much a, an impact crater it's not a volcanic crater the only question is when did this impact happen was it 50 to 60000 years before today or was it like half a million years before today so that is something that uh, needs to be determined properly right now it's kind of a matter of debate and what do i think about the religious stories associated with it i have absolutely no idea of religious stories associated associated with it i see it from the perspective of well geology and science i'm not aware of the religious stories there may be some but so yeah that's not what i am aware of right okay next question sauraj says in india we have beaches mountains desert snow amazing forests great monuments amazing history and much more india is heaven for food lovers vegetarians as well as non vegetarians and indians are the most hospitable people in the world so despite all of this why is tourism in india not doing so well most more people visit, visit other countries why can't we harness the tourism economy it will act as soft power for india and give many jobs very good question i have said this in the past i believe that india has the potential to become a genuine tourism superpower india can be can become if india gets its act together india can become the world's number one tourism destination the oldest civilization so many things like you said mountains and deserts and snow and beaches and forests and islands great monuments uh, sports tourism great historical monuments and and great culture great food great cuisine so much that india can offer to people from other countries so why is india not a popular very popular tourism destination i am not sure what the exact statistics are but i'm sure india is not quite in the top 10 in the world maybe not even in the top 20 tourism destinations in the world it is places like france and paris and greece and what not even uh, uh, i believe uh, korea and japan south korea japan etc that are like more popular tourism destinations than india so why is it so well it's it's actually quite simple our infrastructure is terrible if you're a tourist what do you want you want good hotels you want good infrastructure you if you if you want to go to a certain destination it should be easy to reach that place right let's say let forget about foreign tourists let's say you are an indian tourist an indian pilgrim let's say let's say you you live in let's say you live in new delhi or or let's say you live in chennai all right so you live in chennai and you want to go to the great uh city the the great ancient uh, town of somnath where you have the the great ancient uh, temple right the jyotirling you want to go there shri somnath jyotirling temple one of the greatest and oldest uh, religious sites in india so let's say you're in chennai you want to go to this very famous destination somnath how do you reach there is there an airport in somnath there is none where is the nearest airport i believe it's in uh, diu is it it may be in diu yeah there's an airport here and then you, so you have to either uh, go to diu which is like how far is diu from somnath let's just calculate the distance so it's about 70 kilometers so diu is one of the options or you go to rajkot and then you travel by there so, so rajkot to somnath is about 
160-170 kilometers if you go straight, but obviously the road will not be straight. So you have to get down at Rajkot or or Diu and then take I don't know a bus or a, or or a taxi or whatever and go to Sona. It's it's so difficult. Despite this being one of the most important religious places in the country, and there are so many other important places in the country, religious places and places of of, of touristic interest. But those places, it's not really easy to reach there. And even if you're able to somehow reach there, where will you stay? Are there good hotels available there? Are the places safe enough at night? There are so many questions that one can raise. So our infrastructure is terrible. It is not tourist friendly. Even if you go to a big city like Chennai, Mumbai, you face all kinds of problems as a, as a tourist. Uh I mean, you got to stand in, in in endless queues for various things, and, and there are all kinds of problems, right? And uh, yeah, so so there are so many problems. So what India needs to do is India needs to get its act together, in build proper infrastructure, make the country tourist friendly, inviting to tourists, not problematic for tourists. Not it shouldn't they should not go back with like horror stories or anything. I'm not saying that there are horror stories happening for tourists in India, but you know, it's not a very pleasant experience much of the time. So if you go to, and, and if you contrast that with a country like Japan, it's so great for tourists. If you go to Paris, if you go to France, if you go to Italy, it's such a great experience for a tourist. The infrastructure is great. The hotels are great. Even cheap hotels are, are, are still quite good. And it's very easy to get around. And so on and so forth. So that's what needs to happen. India needs to get its act together. And if, he, if India does that, then India can become a tourism superpower. And if India becomes a tourism superpower, it's India's economy will boom. Because tourists are people who spend a lot of money in your local economy. They come to your city, your town or whatever, and they're going to spend money there. So it's going to bring in foreign money into the country. It's going to benefit the local people, the local shop owners, the local business owners. The problem is that when it's local shop owners and business owners who, who benefit, the politicians kind of feel left out. Because the politicians in many places, in, in at least some places in India, in some places at least in India, the politicians want a cut of everything. They want a percentage. I'm not saying it's that way everywhere. I'm sure there are lots of places in India which are very clean and, and no corruption, etc. But there must be some places, right? One hears from time to time. So then the, if the politicians are kind of getting left out, then they don't really care about tourism then, right? Because it doesn't benefit them. So that's one of the reasons why tourism doesn't do well. Historically, it has not done well in India. But I think there is tremendous potential in India. Tremendous potential for tourism. So one hopes that uh, India unlocks the tourism potential it has, and that would be great for the economy, for the country, for India's soft power, like people say. We love soft power, right? We are obsessed with soft power. Soft power is the most important thing. Anyway, so that's a different story, but yeah. So India has the potential. One hopes that India will unlock that potential, and let's see how that goes. Okay. Peace Out says... I am currently doing my master's thesis in architecture at TU Delft. I think it's in, in the Netherlands. I'm working on energy transition infrastructure in the global south with a focus on the case of India. In your opinion, is transitioning from fossil fuels to a more sustainable source of energy or even nuclear possible in the near future? If so, what would it, what would it take in the case of India? See, when you have 
a country with a massive population like china or india or any country with with a significant population uh it it if you if you you do have to provide for their energy needs and in the case of india and china historically we have used coal we burned coal to generate electricity and of course that has a significant carbon footprint which is not great in the long run so we are burning fossil fuels mostly right but we do need to transition from fossil fuels to something more sustainable something more green so india has uh, embarked upon this this uh, new path the uh, india is the founding member the 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 of the solar alliance the solar alliance is the brain child the brain child of the of of prime minister modi i believe and other countries are involved in that and india has so much sunlight that it's it's conceivable that india could uh, be able to to generate as much electricity as it needs from solar only it's quite possible of course one would need to develop better solar cells and all that but uh, yeah it certainly is possible so solar energy is is a big component of uh, sustainable sources of energy and the other uh, option obviously is nuclear now people are scared of nuclear nuclear is bad why is it bad you do it properly it's going to work just fine and of course india is uh, going forward with building uh, more newer reactors nuclear reactors reactors i believe so as long as you take care of the safety aspect and uh, all of those things properly then i think nuclear power is a very good option for uh, green sustainable energy so uh, so in my opinion is transitioning from fossil fuels to more sustainable sources possible in the near future i think over the next decade next two decades at most india should be able to transition to uh, sustainable sources of energy to a significant extent i would say that more than 50% of india's energy needs in the next 10 20 years possibly could be met by sustainable sources of energy so that's what i think most likely will happen i think it should happen all over the world uh, there are various ways of doing this the easiest way is solar energy then you also have wind energy hydro uh, hydrothermal energy hydropower and uh, waves and piezoelectric all kinds of exotic technologies as well but one should keep things simple focus on two or three things at most and do that so i think solar is a great bet for that and also nuclear so i think that should be the way forward for india okay Chandrasekhar says last time you talked about the proof of rebirth and said that science doesn't accept it because it can't be shown to everyone but isn't the same thing true for science as well many of the complex mathematical proofs aren't even accessible to 1% of the world's population and they are so tough that you have to spend years and years to understand them by making things extremely complex so that only a few people in their respective branches can understand isn't science also taking power and control of authority albeit in a cunning manner okay this wonderful controversy we revisit it today let's see so rebirth and uh, so people are very unhappy with science because science says there is no evidence of rebirth rebirth okay so let's take a different approach let's say let's take a hypothetical case okay a hypothetical case hypothetical scenario let's say there is this person person x 
who is murdered by somebody and the case is never solved who committed the murder it's never found 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 out but a few years later a child starts claiming that i was this person x hmm? and i remember my life i know all kinds of details about the life of person x so i am clearly the reincarnation of person x and i know who committed the crime i know who murdered me in my previous life and the child needs a certain person why so now can you go to court can you go to a court of law in india or any country in the world and say that see i have this undeniable testimony by this child who remembers everything about his or her previous life and this child has has, has proven that so and so person why committed the murder 10 years ago will this evidence hold in a court of law in a court of law in india or in any other country in the world it will not hold they will laugh you off and they'll throw out the case why is that because there is no evidence this is all hearsay and i can i can assure you that even 2 and 1/2000 years before today when you had an indian judicial system in the mauryan empire in the in the in the gupta empire in the in the kushan empire even in india's indigenous legal system such cases would have been thrown out why is it so because there is no way of of conclusively proving that this claim by this child is true what is the correct way of proving reincarnation tell me the only correct way of proving reincarnation is by measuring this object called the soul observing it and proving that it has come out of person x who died and it it has entered person z who is a newborn if you can conclusively demonstrate the transmigration of the soul by observing it and measuring it that is the only way you can actually prove that reincarnation happens that's how science works science has certain criteria you don't don't like those criteria don't believe it but if you break the discipline of science you will have no progress do you understand something science is not something the, something that has been imposed upon india by the west science emerged out of india thousands of years ago all our great maharishis like karnada etc were not crazy they also have would have believed in reincarnation or whatever but when you when it comes to science it's only about the material world you can have no material progress and your culture civilization civilization can never have any progress if you don't develop science science is only about the material observable empirical world it's about material objects observable objects and empirical evidence only that's how science works you don't like it disregard it but you cannot say that science has to be this way or that way right science has a certain discipline and scientists are duty bound to follow the discipline the moment you stray from the path you are no longer a scientist you are a pseudo scientist that is just how it works and the problem in india is that people don't understand science there is this incredible lack of scientific awareness and scientific temperament on the one hand we are proud that we produce so many scientists over the, over the past few thousands of years on the other hand we want to question science on one hand we want india to progress materially india's gdp should grow india should develop more technology etc on the other hand we want to say science should not do this and science should not do that science will do what science has to do it has to do 
you cannot you cannot say that science has to be this way or that way we are proud that we have been able to develop so much technology nuclear weapons missiles of all kinds aircraft fighter aircraft and so on, so on and so forth if you do you think that it would have been possible if we started bending the rules of science and and doing things without evidence it doesn't work like that now when it comes to mathematics uh, many of the complex mathematical proofs aren't accessible to even 1% of the world's population so are we making things complex what exactly is mathematics mathematics is mathematics describes the patterns and the regularities of the observable universe that's what it does you don't make mathematics complex you investigate and discover mathematics and it reveals to you the nature of the universe so it's not like we are creating complex mathematics mathematics is something that we discover and whatever we discover we have to accept it and it is complex it's not complex because we want it to be complex i mean you can do mathematics at any level you want you can stay at the 2 plus 2 equal to 4 level or you can learn multiplication division on all that or you could learn trigonometry or you could progress to algebra but as you go deeper and deeper into math you actually start discovering the true complexity of the universe right and it is complex it's not complex because we want it to be complex the question people ask it's it's very popular nowadays is mathematics invented or discovered mathematics is discovered mathematics is simply what the universe is it tells us what the universe is of course we invent certain tec- techniques of solving certain mathematical problems so that's what we invent we invent techniques but the actual math that we that is revealed to us is discovered we are discovering the true nature of the universe it is complex it is complex you can choose to not see it if you find it most people would find it extremely complex because math is difficult it's extremely difficult it's, it's very complex but it's not like scientists are trying to uh what is that trying to take control of authority and all that no it's just the way it is you go to higher levels in any discipline you cannot be the 1% of the 1% and only 1% of the 1% will be able to understand things at the highest elite level in any discipline in any field whether it is physics whether it is chemistry whether it is mathematics whether it is accounting whether it is entrepreneurship or whatever whether it's build a business whether it's athletics the the elite performers will will be a very few so that's just how it is so i think we need to take a few steps back and stop bashing science without science there is no progress india is the birthplace of science and mathematics and astronomy and all of that calculus trigonometry the things that you find very complex they came out of india they were discovered by indian scientists so see it's up to you at the end of the day you want to believe it you want to believe in reincarnation believe if you don't believe in science don't believe in science but let's let's stay out of what other people are doing would you like scientists to come and tell you how you should uh, uh, what sort of the belief systems you should have <laughs> and and the truth is i mean uh, there is this very very popular and common view that people hold that all scientists are atheists and scientists don't believe in god and scientists are this and that what are you talking about you can believe in god and yet be a scientist why can't you there are so many scientists 
very very great scientists who have been believers in god uh ecg sudarshan george sudarshan who was denied the nobel prize three times he was a advaita vedantin he was a firm believer in, in vedanta shrinivas ramanujan one of the greatest geniuses in mathematics was a firm believer in hinduism then i can give you lots of other examples so if if you believe in dharma in religion if you believe in reincarnation it doesn't mean you cannot be a scientist these are separate matters when you do science you do it with a certain discipline and there are certain rules that you have to follow so as lay people you one has to stay out of things we don't understand and as scientists we have to stay out of questions of culture and and belief and faith so these are separate worlds both have to respect each other's perspective because scientists and science are very important without science you will have no progress whatsoever so i would urge people whether you believe or not in reincarnation in god or whatever you should try and understand what the scientific method is you should try and understand what science is it helps it helps a lot in a variety of ways in life so that's what i would have to say about this okay tejas says what are brown dwarfs are they planets or are they stars a good question so brown dwarfs are essentially failed stars they are stellar sub you could say substellar objects uh their mass is between 13 to 80 times 13 to 85 or 80 times the mass of jupiter so jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system it's a gas giant and it is too small to ignite nuclear fusion within its core right because to ignite nuclear fusion of hydrogen into helium you need enormous amounts of pressure to fuse the atoms together so jupiter its its mass is too too small to ignite fusion but once you cross 13 times the mass of jupiter you are able to ignite a certain kind of fusion you can create you can uh, when when an object is 13 times or more the mass of jupiter then you can have the fusion of deuterium into helium 3 within the core of that object if it's a gaseous object so brown dwarfs are large gaseous objects that are between 13 to 85 or so times the mass of jupiter and they cannot they're not quite massive enough to sustain the to, to ignite the nuclear fusion fusion of hydrogen into helium but they are able to fuse deuterium into helium 3 and they uh, so 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 they're not very luminous much of their 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 energy output is in the infrared wavelengths and uh, they cool down over time so their their uh, the nuclear fusion phase lasts for about 10 20 million years or so after which they no longer under, undergo fusion and they slowly 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 cool down so that is what a brown dwarf it is it is essentially a failed star it is somewhere between a jupiter like planet and an actual star somewhere in between it has some form of fusion the fusion of deuterium 
into helium-3, but not the fusion of hydrogen into helium, which is what powers uh, all regular stars. So that's what a brown dwarf is in very brief. So they are not planets, they are failed stars. Okay, Animesh says, uh, for an astronomy enthusiast, can you recommend a good telescope to, uh, to observe planets and the moon? How should one look for it? How much would a reasonably good telescope cost? What are the things one should look for while buying a telescope? You know what? Uh, I've always wanted to have a telescope. I've, I've wanted to have one since I was like two years old, but I've never actually had a telescope. Never once. I've never owned a telescope. So it's one of the great tragedies of my life. I never had a telescope. So uh, personally, I have no experience with telescopes, but I do understand how telescopes work. So the most important thing you want to look for in a telescope is the aperture of the telescope, which is the size of the lens or the mirror of your telescope. The size means the diameter. So let me give you an example. We have two space telescopes in operation right now, the Hubble Space Telescope and the uh, James Webb Telescope. So the James Webb Telescope is way more powerful than Hubble because its mirror has a much larger diameter. So when your mirror or your lens is larger, you can collect more light and you can see further. So distant objects will appear brighter. So the most important characteristics or feature or specification of a telescope is the size of the is, is the size of the lens or the mirror, which is called the aperture of the telescope. So that is the most important thing you want to look for in a telescope. Obviously, if you have a telescope with a very large aperture, then it's, it becomes a very large telescope. You cannot transport it. You can't carry it around. You have to install it in a building. I'm sure you want a telescope that's not enormous, something reasonably sized. So so then your the aperture of your telescope will not be really enormous. It will be moderate, small to moderate size. That's what uh, astronomy enthusiasts would typically use. And then you have something called the F ratio, which is the uh, ratio, which is the, which is the telescope's focal length divided by the aperture. Right. So the smaller your F ratio is, the smaller your magnification. The higher your F ratio is, the higher your magnification and the further away you can see. And the narrower is your field of focus. So these are the characteristics that typically define a telescope. That's what you learn in optics and physics. So, so I, I don't, I'm not really sure how much a reasonably good telescope would cost, but that's what I can uh, offer you from the theoretical knowledge that I have. I don't have any actual practical knowledge. I've never had a telescope, but it's, it's great that you're interested in astronomy. So I would say you should buy a telescope. I mean, whatever your budget is, the best telescope you can buy with a reasonably good aperture and a good F ratio. So that's what I could offer you. Okay, Shweta says, what's your perspective about existence and human life if is it mere buildup of moments which become hours days months and years or is human life a timeline of memory do we live in memories how would we be if there were no memories my mom mentions that your last session in geopolitics was extremely good thank you to your mom Shweta. so um the perspective of existence and human life is human life merely uh, timeline of memory. Do we live in memories? What would we be if there were no memories? If there were no memories, we would not be ourselves. 
uh, our understanding of the world depends on our past experiences by experiencing a variety of events and uh, and experiences we accumulate memories which tell us the which which give, which offer us recurring patterns of the of of the of 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 existence so how does the world work how do people behave by experiencing these things multiple times we build up a, a storehouse or 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 a dictionary or a database of various patterns and the more we build this database the better we become at handling the world so without memory that would simply won't work if you have no memory you will have no understanding of language you will now have no concept of who you are so memory is integral to your sense of self to your functioning as as a functioning human being and to your consciousness so if you can only perceive things but you can't store the information then i think you're not quite human right so i think memory is integral to human existence and of course it all builds up from moments which becomes which, which become hours and days and months and years and the older you get the faster time seems to go that's one of the quirks of human existence when you are a little child a day can once a single day can seem to last forever but if you are 70 years old even a year seems to go by in a flash so that is one of the interesting quirks of human existence so memory is integral to our uh, to our consciousness and to our uh, our our status as as thinking living perceiving existing human beings so memory is very important your timeline of memory is not quite linear it it's not always linear and you don't always uh, retrieve your memories in a linear fashion some memories are more are, str- are stronger some are kind of weaker you don't think of certain things often then the memories become hazy and weak so so that's how it is and that is the mystery of consciousness what exactly is consciousness memory is obviously an integral part of consciousness that is what shapes our world view of our understanding of the world so memory is integral and central to all of this for sure raghav says when a person learns something and gains knowledge does that person become more polite or more egoistic <laughs> well it depends on the person on your personality on your on your character some people would become more egoistic some people would become more humble more polite it depends on the person everybody is different everybody reacts differently to various things some people once they read a couple of books they say like hmm i'm an expert now i'm an expert <laughs> i know everything some people are like that other people they feel that the more they learn the less they know because the more they become aware of how much more there is to learn right so it depends on the person some people become very egoistic especially when they get a degree of some kind because some people uh, are all about status and certificates and degrees give you status oh now i am recognized as a scholar in so and so so um, so obviously the question is not about degrees and certificates it's about knowledge so uh, you know what they say uh, half knowledge is is very dangerous or whatever and unfortunately everybody only has half knowledge nobody ha- has all the knowledge in their field or anything like that i personally find that the more i read and the more i learn the more i realize how much there is to learn and how much i don't know right i have this entire back catalog backlog of books that i want to read if i actually succeed in reading all of them it's going to take like 10 plus years 
at my speed. My speed is quite rapid. Uh, and obviously, I don't have all day to read. So it's like that. So I personally feel from my own personal perspective that the more I learn things, the more I become aware of how much I don't know and how much there is to learn and how little the, the breadth and width of my knowledge is. Uh, I don't think I'm a very egoistic person, arrogant person. I At least that's what I feel. I, I, it's up to you to judge all that. So I think it's it's up to the individual person. Everybody reacts differently. Everybody, uh, yeah, so that's how it is. Some people will become arrogant, egoistic. I know so much. I've done all this. And some people would become more humble. So that's how it is. It, it's all about human nature. There are a variety of, there's a whole range, a whole spectrum of human nature. So it depends on where the person is on the spectrum. Okay, Kashyapa Gotram Rik says, please, 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 please answer this. Who were the Vanaras? Were they Neanderthals or monkeys? Well, how do we know? If you want to answer a question about an event that happened thousands of years ago, and the question is about a certain population of, of, of people, then you would need some tangible physical evidence of those people. Maybe uh, a burial, maybe a skeleton or so. In which case you have a physical object that you can measure, observe, analyze, and then you could answer. Right? So in the case of the Vanaras from the Ramayan time, we don't, as of today, have any physical evidence of these people, right? So the question is, were the Neanderthals or monkeys? Well, obviously, we don't know that uh, in the 21st century, even the 20th century, even in the past 2000 years, there is no evidence of any talking monkeys, talking monkeys, speaking monkeys, or even Neanderthals. So that's the history of the past 2000 years. Now, what does the word Vanar mean in India's civilizational language, Sanskrit. It's it's a Sanskrit word. We use it in a variety of Indian languages even today. But the word comes from Sanskrit. And the meaning of the word Vanar is somebody who dwells in a forest. Somebody who, who lives in a van. Van means forest or jungle. So the real meaning of the word Vanar is a forest dweller. It doesn't mean monkey. Today it has become, it has come to mean monkey, but it doesn't really mean monkey. The actual meaning is a forest dweller. So most likely the Vanaras who helped Lord Ram in his quest to uh, defeat the evil demon King Ravan, these Vanars were most likely forest dwellers. I do not believe that they were monkeys. They were most likely a population of forest dwelling people who helped Lord Ram in his great quest. So that's what I can say from the uh, meaning of the word in Sanskrit. And we have absolutely no evidence of whether they were monkeys or Neanderthals. We have no evidence that points in this direction or that. So it's mere speculation. But as we know, there is no evidence of any talking monkeys or uh, monkeys with human-like intelligence anywhere in the world. So the simplest and most logical uh, solution or answer is that they, these were a population of forest-dwelling human beings. Okay, Satyam Bardwaj says, why is 
why is it so that certain species of giant beaver, hosts, eagle, Megalania prisca, Neanderthals, etc., have gone extinct despite being much stronger than their counterparts, such as the North American beaver, stellar sea eagle, Komodo dragon, Homo sapiens, which continue to exist. Is it in consonance with Darwin's survival of the fittest theory? Hmm. So you are giving examples of various species of animals, etc., that were large and strong, and yet they went extinct. And their smaller, weaker counterparts still exist today and still survive today. Why is it so? Doesn't it prove that Darwin's theory of the survival of the fittest is incorrect? Does it mean that? Good question. See, it's like this. Large doesn't always mean fit. Size doesn't indicate fitness. It doesn't necessarily indicate fitness. Think of this image in your mind. A sumo wrestler. A sumo wrestler is a very large individual. But is that person really fit? I wonder what is the average life expectancy of a sumo wrestler? Is it the same as your normal human being? Is it higher or is it lower? I would guess that the average life expectancy of a sumo wrestler must be lower than the average regular layperson. So size doesn't necessarily indicate fitness. Sometimes leaner is meaner and fitter. Right? So, uh, and it's not only about the size, it's also about the intelligence, the adaptability. For instance, if you give the example of Neanderthals, for whatever reason, Homo sapiens turned out to be longer lasting than, than Neanderthals, our cousins. Of course, many non-African humans have some Neanderthal genes, which is a whole different story. So the, the simple answer is that size doesn't necessarily indicate fitness. There have been so many large, large, large animals that have gone extinct. For instance, when there is an extinction event like event like the uh, Paleogene Cretaceous extinction event 66 million years before, before today, all of the large dinosaurs died out. They could not survive that event. But the smaller dinosaurs, the, the avian dinosaurs, survived it. So they survived the terrible catastrophe and they still exist today. Dinosaurs still exist as of today. Similarly, a bunch of small rat-like mammals also survived that extinction event and their descendants are using all this technology today. It's us. So size doesn't always indicate fitness. Fitness is a whole bunch of a variety of various factors and it depends on what, what the environment is like right now. So that's why sometimes it's the smaller species, the, the apparently weaker species that turn out to be fitter and they survive longer. Okay. Varun says, when are you launching your course in physics? Your way of explaining is just awesome. Do consider this. I, I as a student of physics am waiting for that. Thank you so much. Uh, I don't have any immediate plans of launching any course in physics. I think the majority of the people would want me to launch a course in history or on book in history or a variety or, or a number of courses and books in history. I think I would have to do that first because most people are not interested in science. Most people are interested in Indian history. So I think I should do that first. Eventually, I don't mind launching a course in 
in physics or astrophysics or something something that can be understood by everybody so that's something i will do most likely eventually but right now i should definitely focus on history for now but thank you very much for the suggestion and thank you krishna says tell us about norse mythology and vikings like eric the red and the lothbrok so norse mythology is the mythology of the viking of those of the scandinavian people the vikings and the simplest way of understanding norse mythology is to imagine ancient indian mythology but transport that to a land of ice and snow that's it that's norse mythology the same gods with different names and they live in a land of ice and snow and midnight sun i'm going all led zeppelin right here so in norse mythology there is this indian god who becomes a viking god the indian god has two weapons one is the thunderbolt called vajra in sanskrit and the other is the hammer also called the vajra in sanskrit this god obviously is indra he becomes thor in norse mythology and a variety of other gods the entire vedic pantheon of gods essentially is present in norse mythology so just imagine indian ancient indian vedic mythology and transport all of those gods into a land where there is ice and snow and midnight sun that is norse mythology that's how can how i can describe it in brief now you're asking about eric the red and the lothbroks a sailor and he happened to be the first person across the so called atlantic ocean and he happened to be the first european in recorded history to see north america with his own eyes so he went all the way west and he was able to see north america but he did not actually land there he went back because of scarcity of rations because he was running out of provisions and all that most likely so eric the red is the first european first white man in in recorded history and his son leif eriksson then followed in his father's footsteps and he actually landed in north america in most likely in newfoundland in present day canada and they have found an ancient viking uh, archaeological site in north america it's called uh, lance de medoz or something like that so that is the story of eric the red and his son leif eriksson now when it comes to the lothbroks you're talking about ragnar lothbrok so ragnar lothbrok was a legendary uh, viking warrior raider and king he launched a number of raids into england and uh, he became the king of the vikings of the scandinavians and he was a very legendary fighter a legendary figure he is considered by by historians by historians to be a semi mythical or semi legendary king of the vikings that's how historians portray him and his son bjorn ironside well he was one of the great kings of sweden of the vikings his uh, bjorn's uh, tomb or or barrow still stands somewhere in sweden i believe and uh, ragnar lodbrok he met a very strange death he was captured by 
an English king, was it from Northumbria? King Ella, I think, who captured him eventually and he he put him in a pit full of vipers or snakes and he was bit bitten by the snakes to death. Um, so that's how the story goes. So that is the story of Ragnar Lothbrok. Then he was killed by this English king. So his sons, so Ragnar's sons then decided to take revenge for their father's death and they invaded the British islands. There was called the Great Viking invasion or the Great Heathen invasion or something like that. Something like that. And they were able to invade and conquer England and plunder the land. So that is in brief the story of Ragnar Lodbrok and his sons. And his sons, uh, one of them was obviously, like I said, Bjorn Ironside. And then there was this guy called Ivar the Boneless and a few other sons as well. Sigurd the Snake in the Eye. So these are the names of his sons. And I think there's this wonderful serial called Vikings, right? That has popularized these ancient stories. So, yeah. That, in brief, is the answer. All right. Is it true, Ashish says, is it true that someone who understands science will understand other subjects? The vice versa is not true. So is it true that a person who understands science will understand all other subjects? But a person who doesn't understand science will not understand other subjects. Not quite true. You can be a great scientist and you you may not understand anything about art. You may be a great physicist, but you will be a terrible football manager. You may be a great mathematician, but you may end up being a terrible businessman or businesswoman. So it's not necessary that if you understand science well, that you will understand all other subjects very well. Not quite so. Not quite so. Of course, an understanding of the scientific method is very valuable and beneficial in a variety of ways in life, but it's not always the case that if you are great at science, that you will be great at everything else. Right? Okay, Karthik says, you talk about discoveries and inventions made by our ancestors. Also, please talk about astrology. I get this question a lot. Unfortunately, I know nothing about astrology. It's something I've never studied. I've honestly never been interested in. So, uh, I'm sure it's uh, very interesting and uh, there must be a lot to learn in it, but I do not know anything about it. So I just took this question to put this on the record. I don't know anything about astrology. Someone says, thoughts on premium possessions. Do you collect any of it? Cars or watches? (laughs) Uh, My premium collections, possessions are books. I connect books. This is just a small sample of the books that I have. I have other bookshelves in other places in my house. So I have a whole lot of books. That's the premium possessions I collect. I don't collect cars or watches. I have a watch that I bought 18 years or so ago. I still use it. It's not a cheap watch, but I I buy things that last. So I am not quite a collector of anything else. I don't collect anything else. The only thing I collect is books. So it's up to you. If you like collecting things, then collect things. Some people like to collect wine bottles. Some people collect watches. Some ladies collect shoes. They have thousands of pairs of shoes. Some people want to buy expensive cars. So it depends on your personal tastes and all that. So for me, it's books. (laughs) Books. Shankajit Ghosh Tastidar says, How do you remain motivated on your goals 
and read so much i keep losing motivation in a few days and i lost the habit of reading books which i had before after so much of electronic device usage at work and home nowadays i can only read a couple of pages at a time please help see it's about stamina even when it comes to reading books it takes a certain amount of mental stamina if you lose the habit if you lose the discipline of reading every day then your mental stamina will decrease and then you will not be able to read more than 2 3 pages a day so if you build a habit you have to keep on sustaining the habit in that in that case you are able to you'll be able to read more you may even actually be able to read faster now how do you remain motivated and you say that you lose motivation in a few days well you can't motivate me to do things i don't like <laughs> right i mean there are plenty of activities that i don't enjoy at all and i will never ever be motivated to do that but some things so so what is it that motivates people two things either you enjoy the process of whatever you're doing or you are going towards an end, end result that is really attractive so for let's take a hypothetical example bodybuilding bodybuilding is a painful process you go to gym you lift weights every day heavy weights it's painful your muscles ache you have aches and pains every day and that's a lot of hard work it's physical labor that you're doing in the gym like 2 hours a day or whatever it takes and you would do it for months and months and months on end actually you would do it for years on end so why do people do that why do they not lose motivation some people enjoy the process of bodybuilding going to gym lifting weights it's fun for some people some people enjoy the muscular pain that they experience they enjoy the muscular pump that they get in the gym so they enjoy the process or they may look forward to the end result i want to be a massive superhuman being so i'm willing to put myself through the, through the pain because i have this very attractive goal that is waiting for me at the end of the road so that's an example from bodybuilding so either you enjoy the process or you have a very attractive end result that you desperately seek or it's a combination of both factors so you cannot remain motivated in something that you don't enjoy or whose end result doesn't appeal to you right so maybe it is that there is no real tangible benefit for you from reading books maybe maybe it could be that way i'm just i'm just guessing i don't really know what what your what your um, i i don't really know you so i'm guessing that maybe maybe perhaps hypothetically uh you may not quite know what you want to get out of reading books so for me it was just curiosity i mean i just enjoy the process of reading books that's what that's what it's been like for me i really enjoy the process of discovery i really enjoy reading books it's like going on a journey for me so that's why i've i've always been able to sustain that habit but if you ask me to do something else like peel potatoes <laughs> well you won't see any motivation from me so it's all, that's how it is so don't force yourself to do things you don't really enjoy when it comes to electronic devices and all that yeah that's that's a problem these days there are so many distractions there is so much cheap instant gratification instant entertainment scroll up scroll up scroll up watch this 30 second video scroll up so watch the second watch the next 30 second video and you can do that endlessly on loop for hours and hours you need to break free of that that is simply uh 
it's an addiction addiction to the dopamine release that you get from watching these uh, videos that actually don't help you grow in any way and don't offer you any real value so that is something you have to figure out for yourself how to break free of that and if obviously if you spend so much time doing that you will not have time to do anything else which is which may be more valuable to you so you need to find a way of breaking free of these habits maybe you can delete those apps from your phone that's a good idea so yeah shri shriyansh shriyansh says what's the best diet to follow for a 20 year old to gain weight it's very simple if you want to gain weight eat more and lift weights that's the solution eat more lift weights obviously it's not as simple as that you have to eat right so let's say you're 20 years old and whatever you're eating it, it keeps you at a certain weight so try and eat 20 percent more food and eat the right food eat more protein eat less processed carbohydrates eat, cut out all the refined carbohydrates eat lots of vegetables eat more protein i'm not sure if you're vegetarian or non-vegetarian if you are a non-vegetarian meat eater you have only a few options for protein sources if you are a vegetarian you have way more options for protein so depending on what you are you can tailor your diet to your needs but obviously if you want to gain weight you have to eat more than what you're eating very simple very simple try and eat 20 percent more than what you're eating for the next three months and see how it goes and obviously if you want this weight gain to be sustainable you have to go to gym and lift weights like you have to go in a you have to start a weight training program and it has to be a weight training program that's tailored to your body structure and all that. Everybody has a different metabolism, different genetics, and so on and so forth. So everybody is different. So that's what I can say in brief. Uh, obviously, you should follow proper medical advice. Have a good trainer, hopefully. And uh, yeah, so that is the general principle of how you would how you would succeed in gaining weight. And obviously, it will not happen in two weeks, three weeks. Give yourself one year. These changes are slow. So, so it's possible, it is certainly possible, depending on your genetics and metabolism, it's certainly possible for you to gain 10 kilos of muscle mass in a year if you eat the right kind of food and follow the right weight training program. Very much possible at, that, at, the, at, the, at the age of 20. So all the best, sir. All the best. Okay, the Indian critic says, wisdom versus power, which is greater? Usually people imagine an ideal world and say that wisdom is greater than power. But in reality, there are many examples where power defeated wisdom. So basically give opinions, not on your basis, but on the basis of reality on this controversial topic. And please say the truth because truth is bitter. Okay, sir, I will try to say the truth. Why is this topic controversial? I see nothing controversial about this. So what is greater, wisdom or power? Wisdom or power? If you have wisdom. See, what really matters in life? It doesn't matter how wise you are. What truly matters in your life is what impact you have on the real world. You are born not to observe. You are born to participate in the world. And if you just sit at home and observe and become very wise by reading books, but you don't use that wisdom for anything, then your life is pointless. Your existence is essentially pointless because it will it will be as good as not having existed. If you have if you leave behind no legacy or have no impact on the world or on, on the society in any way whatsoever. So the true 
measure of your of your of of the impact you have in your in, in your life is how you affect society whether you impact society in any way or not whether you change the world in any way or not that is a true measure of how valuable your life was so if you only have wisdom but you have no power to do anything then you will be able to do nothing in your life so power is definitely very important if you have power then you can effect changes in your life in in your life in the lives of others in society in the world so wisdom without power is useless it's pointless but power without wisdom is also very dangerous but even if you have no wisdom and you have power you can still change society for good or for bad so greater what is greater power is always greater power is always greater of course one would want a person who is powerful to also be wise that would be the ideal situation but a person who is wise and has no power is meaningless a person who is powerful but is not wise can still change the world in some ways in many ways so which is greater wisdom or power power is greater okay tejas says how can one find strength within and stop being demotivated are you always in a happy state of mind do you ever feel like not coming on live streams and canceling them because you're not feeling like doing them do you ever feel you are not good enough mm, good questions am i always in a happy state of mind i am usually in a happy state of mind i'm a very positive person but obviously life is not all nice things life is full of ups and downs i have been through my ups and downs life's not always been pretty but i am a very positive person overall so yeah right now i am in a happy state of mind i'm happy and do i ever feel like not coming on streams and canceling them because i don't feel like doing them sometimes in the middle of the week or so i may feel kind of lazy and shall i do it this week or not but when the weekend comes i do my live streams on weekends as you guys know by the time the weekend comes i'm always motivated because i enjoy this i enjoy this process of of interacting with you all of answering your questions taking your questions and dealing with various interesting topics so i really enjoy this process and since i enjoy this process i am not like i don't feel demotivated so it's never been ever that i i did not feel like coming on a live stream or canceling a live stream it's never happened once or twice i have been like ill i caught a virus a couple of times once or twice i was traveling that's why i had to cancel streams but apart from that i have not canceled any streams since i started apart from these two three instances and uh, once i did a live stream when i had a 104 degree fever i never spoke about this because there's no point it's it's, it's it doesn't concern you the first podcast that i did on this channel with anuj dar it's a the first one so when i did that i had a 104 degree fever but i still came because well i i gave you my word so i should keep it so it's about being professional it's about enjoying the thing so uh i have never felt like canceling a stream i've canceled streams only when it was inevitable when i had no option uh do i ever feel that i am not good enough i don't quite feel that i'm not good enough i always feel that i have to improve i always feel that there is something that i can do better there's a lot i can do better i always have this feeling that i am getting in this comfort zone and i'm taking things lightly or i'm taking things for granted i should do something different i should take on more responsibilities do something else so 
that is a feeling that I always have, but I don't ever feel that I'm not good enough. I think I'm reasonably good enough. I'm not great. I'm not some super genius. I'm not some oh, whatever, you know, ex- super expert, super genius, but I am reasonably good. Reasonable. So that's how I feel. I I am, I don't consider myself an expert in anything. I consider myself a student. I am learning things and I'm sharing whatever I'm learning. So if you have that attitude, then you will not feel that you have to be the best. Right? So so that's where I am. How do I find strength and not stop being demotivated? Uh, I am not demotivated. What what is what exactly does demotivated mean? When it means that you have some goal, but you kind of don't feel like pursuing it anymore. So you lose the motivation to reach the goal. So that is demotivation. So that will happen when your goal is not interesting enough or or it doesn't fit with your values right when you have a certain worldview you have certain values inside you and you are pursuing a certain goal but you are pursuing it for the wrong reasons then you will not have the motivation maybe it's your family who wants you to do this thing or maybe it's society that expects certain things from you and that's why you're trying to do it you're doing it to impress other people even though you don't actually like it in that case you will not be motivated so I'm just giving examples. I'm not uh, guessing what what it is that uh, what you are going through. I obviously don't know that. I'm just giving hypothetical examples. So in such cases, you would feel demotivated. So the trick is to find an objective, a big objective, like a 10-year objective that really, really comes from within you, that you want from within, from deep inside, and you want to do it for yourself, not for somebody else. So if you can find that sort of thing, that sort of goal, that sort of big objective, then you will not feel demotivated. So that is what I can say. I hope that helps, sir. Okay, let us take some live chat questions. Where was it? I saw something interesting. Yeah, there it is. Do you believe in ghosts? Well, I don't know. Have I ever seen a ghost? Not quite sure. So, um, do I have evidence that ghosts don't exist? Do I have unequivocal evidence that ghosts don't exist? I don't. Maybe they do. Who knows? I don't understand the entire universe. I don't even understand 1% of the universe, what it is like, what drives it. So, I, uh, what I would say is that I don't know. I am ghost agnostic. I have never quite, quite experienced a ghost for 100% sure but I can't say that they don't don't exist so yeah I am ghost agnostic all right Mm. video is not clear really again is the video clear it is not clear that would be terrible if that would be the case Okay. Where do I get my t-shirts? I usually buy them from shops, sometimes online. Why is the video quality not clear? What is this? Is it not clear? Let me try and change the...
Okay, can you see me? Terrible since the beginning. It's the second time that's happened. It's terrible. Anyhow, let's take some more questions. I hope you guys can see me. Um, how can we take Kailash from China? How can we take Kailash from China? Well, we would have to take Tibet from China. We would have to free Tibet. And uh, so, yeah, that's something that will that will hopefully happen in the future. It's certainly not going to happen anytime soon. Okay. The video quality is better now. All right, that's great. Who discovered water on the moon? Chandrayaan 1 or Sophia Telescope? I have never heard of Sophia Telescope, but as far as I know, it was the Chandrayaan 1 lunar orbiter that discovered water on moon. Okay, let's take some other questions. If we believe in God, we have to believe in ghosts too, right? Well, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, if you have experienced a ghost, then you will have to believe it, <laughs> I guess. So I think it's about your personal experiences. If somebody has actually met a ghost or seen a ghost or experienced a ghost, then whether they believe in God or not, they will have to believe in a ghost. So it all depends on your personal experience. So, uh, so that, that's most likely what it would be like. Jake says, is there anything wrong morally in building a career abroad? There's nothing wrong morally with it. Uh, for most people, you have to pursue what's best for you in life, whether it's in India, whether it's somewhere else. Of course, it's nice to be patriotic and build your country. But hey, it's your life. It's your choice. I don't see anything morally wrong with it if you want to move abroad and build a career there. So it's entirely up to you, sir. Why did you dis delete your Discord server? Please answer. I deleted it because I was not able to participate. I had not logged in for months. I'm so busy. Now I have created this. I had created this Discord server community in my name, in which I was never ever present, and a whole bunch of other people were running it. I don't. I did not even know what was happening there. That is very irresponsible, actually, in a way, that I create a community in my name and I never participate there. And then what I found is that yesterday I got a message from Discord saying that one of the administrators was trying to take ownership of the server. So that's when I thought that it's uh, it's it's been enough time. I don't know what's happening there. And if somebody hijacks the server, then God knows what they will do in my name. So since I was unable to participate in the Discord community because of my terrible paucity of time and because I had no idea what was happening there I think I it's it, it was the right decision to delete the server because well either you take the responsibility or you or you don't so I was not in a position to take the responsibility so that's why I did that sir do you like do you like Lord of the Rings yes I like it uh, the book or the movie the movies were very good the book is also great. Of course, there are certain problematic as aspects in the book. Uh, there is, you can see that there is this latent white supremacism uh, of the writer there that sometimes creeps through in the writing. But overall, it's a great, it's a great, great book, great story. 
one of the great uh, achievements in literature. Difference between a Raja Samrat and a Chakravarti Samrat. A Chakravarti Samrat is an emperor who, who conquers territories and lands in all directions. A Raja or a Samrat is a local king. So the difference between a king and an emperor. A king is a Raja or a Samrat. A Chakravarti Samrat is an emperor who conquers a great, great territory, a great empire. So one could say that uh, Chandragupta Maurya was a Chakravarti Samrat. Ashok Maurya, whether you like him or not, was a Chakravarti Samrat because he had an enormous empire. Kanishka the Great was a Chakravarti. Skandagupta, um, Samudra Gupta was a, was a Chakravarti Samrat. And uh, Lalita Ditya Muktapida was a Chakravarti Samrat. So was uh, Rajendra Chola. Right? So that is the difference between a simple Raja and a Chakravarti Samrat. That's the difference between a Maharaj and a Maharaja Dhiraj. Right? Are Indian Gulab Jamuns better than the Pakistani ones? I have never eaten Pakistani Gulab Jamuns. So, no idea. But I am sure our Gulab Jamuns are better than the Pakistani ones. Obviously. Right. Let's take some other questions. Okay. Uh, which other question should I take? Where's the Indian stock market heading? I hope that it's going in the right direction towards a bull phase rather than rather than a bear phase. But I am not quite an expert in these things, so maybe you should not ask me. <laughs> uh, why do whales and big mammals not get cancer? That's an interesting question. I hear that the, that um, blue whales, the largest mammal that we know of, I hear that blue whales don't get cancer and even elephants most likely don't get it. I am not quite sure why. That's a very interesting question. Maybe I will look it up, try and research this because, yeah, it's something that one should know about. It's a good question, Tejas. I don't quite have the answer today, but I will try and look it up and hopefully answer in a subsequent episode. Is God exist? Give answer in yes or no. The answer is a definite maybe. I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. I've never seen or experienced God. It doesn't mean God doesn't exist. Maybe I'm just too small to experience something so great. Right? I am just a small, tiny, insignificant human being with a very limited intellect and very, very rudimentary perception. Maybe I'm just too small and insignificant to understand or comprehend or experience God. So I don't know. I have never experienced any material manifestation, physical manifestation of God. But hey, that doesn't mean God doesn't exist. There is no way that I can answer for sure because I haven't, because I I don't know. You can give a yes or no answer if you can understand the entire universe and maybe what's beyond the universe. I can't. So I don't know. I hope God exists. That would be great. But sadly, personally, I've never experienced God myself. Okay. What else do we have? 
can europe ban russian oil well they can try to ban russian oil but they are deeply dependent on russian energy whether it's oil whether it's gas so if they do stop buying russian oil and gas they will have to acquire it for a much higher price from the us or from the saudis or somewhere else and the saudis are not willing to ramp up their oil production even though the americans want them to so that creates a big dilemma for the americans in their vassal states and for for western europe so as of today i most likely europe is in a as as of today as of right now europe is between a rock and a hard place they are completely completely dependent on russia for energy but the americans want them to stop buying russian energy so right now the energy prices are skyrocketing not skyrocketing but they are rising significantly in europe energy is becoming more expensive uh there may be the need for rationing and cutting down on energy expenditure in, in europe and overall everything is going to be more expensive there's going to be inflation prices are going to rise so that's where we are maybe they can ban russian oil to great pain to themselves because they will have to buy american oil or other oil at much higher prices than what the russians would uh, sell them oil at so yeah that's the situation in europe can you please explain the battles of khanjol hill and the battle of red hill i don't know about khanjol hill but if you are talking about the battle of red hill i think you are talking about a battle that happened in the mid 1940s on the outskirts of the city of imphal in manipur i think that's what you're mentioning so this was a battle that happened between the british indian army and the invading japanese army it happened at a hill called red hill i've been there personally and it was a terrible battle and the japanese lost at the end there is a japanese memorial there where japanese people still come from time to time to to pay their tributes to their fallen compatriots so it was one of the turning points including in in the in the japanese offensive in the second world war it was one of the turning points along with the battle of imphal and the battle, battle of kohima and the japanese did lose these battles and that's where the uh string of defeats of the japanese army began so that is the furthest west the japanese were able to come in asia and from there they started getting defeated and obviously with the japanese you also had the involvement of the indian national army under the great subhash chandra bose so there is a memorial to the ina in moirang in manipur which is about 50 or so kilometers south of the city of imphal so there is this wonderful museum there and a memorial where you have these very interesting photographs of the ina and uh, the records of the way of many manipuri civilians who fought with the ina to get rid of the british from indian soil and all of this is forgotten history so this this battle the the battle of red hill was a terrible terrible battle very bloody battle all the japanese died i believe in that and that's why that hill is called red hill so i'm not sure if uh, much of it is available online the information but very interesting question you ask and i'm very surprised somebody even knows about these things so great great question okay <clears throat> 
Okay, let's take some couple of more questions. Who is more powerful, IAS or the biggest businessmen in India? The biggest businessmen are extremely wealthy. The IAS is extremely powerful. Power, money. What is more valuable? It's always power that is more valuable. So the business people, they have a lot of wealth. And they can translate some of that wealth into some sort of power. They can buy favors if they need to. And they have a lot of influence. But the IAS is the machinery, the state machinery that runs the entire governance system of India. It can, an IAS officer can destroy a business if he wants to, if he or she wants to. In the past, it has been known to happen at times. I'm sure many IAS officers are really brilliant people, really patriotic, hardworking, well-meaning people. But obviously, there are some who are not quite so good. Some, somewhere, here and there. A few maybe. Possibly. Perhaps. Allegedly. So, who is more powerful, IAS or business people? It's the IAS that holds all the power. Not the business people. The business people have a lot of money, but no matter how much money you have, the person who holds the reins of the machinery of the state is always more powerful. So IAS is more powerful than the richest business people. They just says, how did Indian ancestors reach Australia? Most likely they went by by ships. India was always a maritime civilization. Even in the Rig Veda, there are mentions in the, in the Shatpat Brahman, etc. There are mentions of these enormous ships with a hundred oars. So that is like several thousand years ago. And we know that the Indian genetic uh, imprint in Australia dates back to some about 5,000 years before today. So that is the, the time period of the Saraswati Sindhu phase of our civilization. So at that time, when the Saraswati Sindhu phase of, of India's civilization was at more or less at, at its peak, that's when some Indian travelers, sailors, most likely sailors, they reached Australia. And their genetic imprint is still present there today. So most likely, I mean, if you look at the map, let's go to the map. So how do you reach Australia? Either you can go by land, but you will have to cross the Malacca Strait. Or the so, so there is no direct land connection. So either you go by by hopping across these islands of Sumatra, Java, and all, and all that, or you go straight across the the Kalinga Sagar, which is now called the Bay of Bengal, and you go straight down south to Australia. So it was clearly a sea voyage of some kind, most likely in in ships. So that's what one can speculate happened. Obviously, we have found no material evidence of what happened, of, of what ship they used or whatever, because it's been so long ago. But clearly, our our, our people reached there and left behind their genetic uh, evidence. Right. Mm. Uma says, what will happen if UK repeals India Independence Act? I have no idea. There are some people who say that India is still somehow beholden to the UK in some ways. The There are some secret clauses in the India Independence Act or something. Not quite sure what the truth is. Clearly something is fishy in all this, but I don't know. But obviously, even if they repeal the India Independence Act or whatever, there's nothing they can really do to change, 
to 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 make india subservient to them again they simply don't have the power to do that so it would not really have make much of a difference but it's it's interesting because much of what what happened during the transfer of power has not quite been revealed to the people of india okay let's take one more question one more question okay samarth says what is justice is justice revenge why does a perfect judiciary system not exist today why are loopholes present in all systems what is justice justice means uh well you can have a variety of definitions of what justice is but essentially justice means uh righting the wrongs r i g h t i n g righting the wrongs if somebody has done something wrong you set it right according to whatever laws you are following so that is justice is there is an element of revenge in it but that revenge is for the sake of deterrence so you ensure by by meeting out punishments uh to the wrong doers you ensure that other wrong doers are deterred from doing that that if i do this i'm going to be caught and the, the same thing will happen to me so there is an element of retribution there is an element of deterrence to it and there is an element of of uh, setting a wrong right as well so if you purchase a product and you don't get what you expected you get a defective product then obviously you deserve compensation for that and justice will ensure that you get the compensation that the manufacturer or the merchant who sold the product to you will have to issue a refund to you or something like that so it's 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 a complex thing and why does a perfect judiciary system not exist today i suspect a perfect judiciary system never ever existed anywhere in the world because this is this is not mathematics laws are man made or human made creations and there there's no such thing as a perfect law or perfect system of laws loopholes are present in all systems that are human made and i don't think there was ever a system of justice that was completely 100% infallible and completely perfect so that's just how it is and it's it's well known that many people who are punished especially in the us are punished wrong wrongfully some people are are like uh, freed 20 30 years after 20 30 years on death row sometimes it happens and obviously there have been people who have been executed wrongly in the us and i'm sure the same thing happens in all other justice systems in the world including perhaps in india as well perhaps perhaps so yeah that's how it is all right what is the best parenting way should i beat my child or not i would recommend don't beat your child try and make the child understand what what is right what is wrong beating most likely would be counterproductive i would say i would say so please talk about kgf kolar gold fields history of gold mining and wars fought to acquire the gold mine i don't know about the history i haven't seen the movie i haven't studied the history so i don't know but sounds like an interesting topic i can talk about the hirapanna mines diamond mines which the british plundered the word for diamond in hindi and most indian languages is hira so that comes from the name of the mine hira and panna and today if you go to those mines there's nothing there what happened the british extracted everything of value out of it so yeah that's what i can say about that 
And that brings us to the end of today's session. Once again, nearly two hours. Thank you so much for all your questions. Thank you for participating in this. And let's do the same thing next week. And hopefully I will fix these issues of the image quality. Well, thank you so much. Take care and I will see you next week, next episode. Thank you. Bye.